Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War is Luke Manan's fourth book. The Metaphysical Club, a story of ideas in America, won the 2002 Pulitzer Prize for History. He's a professor of English at Harvard and a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. Luke Manan, welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here, Rob. In the prologue to your 2001 book, The Metaphysical Club, your study of American pragmatism, you make an argument about ideas. You write, ideas do not develop according to some inner logic of their own, but are dependent like germs on the human carriers and the environment. Since ideas are provisional responses to particular and unpredictable circumstances, their survival depends not on their immutability, but on their adaptability. I wondered how much that idea or those, those set of ideas influenced your work in your new book, The Free World, in which you are looking at the social life of ideas and particularly the adaptability of the idea of freedom. I mean, it just never occurred to me, but you're completely right. That's the spirit in which I tried to tell this story. That these ideas pass from person to person, and each time they pass, they get interpreted slightly differently or misunderstood or mistranslated. And that's how movements grow, and that's how works of art and, and works of thought come into being. So, yes, it's very much in that pragmatist spirit. At the beginning of the book, you say that uh, two reasons uh, drove you to write it. The first was that this was the period you grew up in, so it's sort of a veiled autobiography. And then you also say that there was a historiographic challenge. You write, quote, How to tell a story of change on this scale? To do so, I made a series of vertical cross-sections rather than a survey. I also focused on the headliners, the artists and thinkers who became widely known. I do not think that their stories are the only interesting ones. But one of the things I was trying to understand is why certain figures became emblematic. You conclude by saying that the book ended up as, quote, a novel with a hundred characters. Tell me about this idea of a novel uh, with a hundred characters. Well, that wasn't the intention, but I found that when I tried to tell the story in these vertical cross sections, so there's a cross section has to do with theories of totalitarianism through the lens of Hannah Arendt, and there's a section that has to do with existentialism through Sartre and Beauvoir, and there's a section on abstract expressionism and pop music and so forth, and that each section is meant to drill down pretty deeply into that particular moment when these artists and thinkers generated the thought that had an influence beyond that moment. And in doing that, I didn't actually make a conscious effort to link up the different chapters. I tried to almost treat each chapter as a book in itself. But I found, which is something I found working on The Pragmatists too, that the same people keep popping up as you go along through this period. It starts around 1945, ends around 1965. You know, Hannah Arendt is still relevant in the 1960s, and Lionel Trilling is still relevant, Allen Ginsberg, and so on. So there's an interesting way in which it is like a novel in the sense there's lots of characters, but the characters are all playing a role in this larger drama. And that surprised me and pleased me because I felt that the story does hang together you know, in a very complicated way. And I try not to generalize about it. I try to let the reader come up with their own understanding of what this period was really about. But they, they do hang together. And I think it gives us a picture of a very distinctive period in cultural history, not just U.S. cultural history, but global. 
The Metaphysical Club was a very American book. This book is a very international book. Uh, it's constantly looking to Europe for answers to American questions, looking to America for answers to European questions. And it has this fascinating dialectic where the people who you think are going to come and say something and have an enormous influence in America do so, and then they may leave and go back to Europe or vice versa. Uh, did you have this sort of dynamic in mind when you first started thinking through the book? I think when I started thinking about the book, which is quite a while ago, <laughs> um, I, like most people who write about the Cold War period, I had a very U.S.-centric viewpoint on it. And then as I gradually began writing it, I realized that that's a very limited and parochial way of thinking about this period, that you have to think globally and internationally. So in political histories of the Cold War, the global approach is now the standard approach. Uh, but in cultural histories, it still tends to be very U.S.-centric, as though all this stuff came out of the particular position of the United States in this period geopolitically. Uh, and the more I looked at it, the more I realized that just isn't the case, that there's a lot of cultural mobility, as we call it. There's a lot of cultural interaction. A lot of Europeans, and also East Asians, had an influence, and, and Indians had an influence on American thought that didn't particularly involve an investment in Amer the idea of America. They may have only been here briefly. Some weren't here never at all. But they were important figures in having and seeing the development of these art and ideas from an American point of view. So I did consciously try to make it as international as I was competent to do. There are several things I wish that I had included in the book that I wasn't able to. And one of them was the interactions between the United States and Japan, because Japan had a very active avant-garde art scene in the 1950s, well before a lot of the same kind of art that started being made in the United States. And there was a lot of mobility between American artists and Japanese artists and Japanese art critics that I wasn't able to write about. But that's another example of the way that once you start looking at it from a global point of view, the whole globe is, is participating. In it. We tend to think of the world as passively awaiting the American cultural hegemony. That's really not the way it worked at all. I was thinking about the uh, Fluxus movement in Japan in the late 50s. Uh, I guess you could have conceivably just kept going on forever. I know. That's true. I could have written 18 more chapters. But the last one would have been written from the grave, probably. One big figure in this book is Isaiah Berlin. You use the occasion to distinguish between what he did and what you are doing in this book. You write, the history of ideas is not the same as intellectual history. Intellectual history explains art and ideas by examining the conditions of their production and reception, as this book tries to do. Berlin took a books-talking-to-books approach, which is the approach of the historian of ideas. Uh, that's certainly a much more common approach uh, in this genre, isn't it? That's what I feel. I find those kinds of books very frustrating because they don't reach down into the material conditions of production and they don't reach out to the nature of the audience that's interpreting, receiving, you know, promoting this kind of work. And if you don't understand those two sets of conditions, I think it's very hard to make sense of what the books are about. But, but people do tend to write that way. When you mentioned the two motivations, the personal one and the historiographic one, the important to me was the historiographic one. I really wanted to discover a way of telling the story that would try to include all these elements that generally get left out of standard cultural histories, the social forces, demographic change, technological development, you know, travel, trade, 
the value of the franc, you know, all that stuff that actually tells you a lot about why did Ernest Hemingway go to Paris? Because it was incredibly cheap. But we, we don't think that way. What were some of the inspirations or models for this book as you tried to think through some of the historiographic puzzles? You know, I didn't have a model for it in mind, but you're right that what differentiates what I'm doing from the sort of history from the bottom up kind of approach is that I'm very biographically focused. That's true of the Metaphysical Club, too, because I think that individuals are at the point of intersection between social conditions and the forces that make possible certain kinds of ideas and certain kinds of art and the zeitgeist, whatever that is. And it's my understanding how individuals are positioned between those two sort of meta elements that we get a handle on what's going on. So I do tend to be very biographical. I don't think most historians of ideas are particularly biographical. I don't even think most intellectual historians are particularly biographical. So that's what happens here. I mean, that's why it has characters. I tell you who these people are, and I try to set them in motion so that you can follow them through the story. Throughout this book, you are very conscious of the way different characters work uh, so as distinguished from another kind of biographical history where it would be sort of a series of miniature profiles, you're aware that certain figures have a very different valence than others. You have this one sentence in the middle of the art section where you say, not every figure, however, is a hinge, someone who represents a moment when one mode of practice swings over to another. And it's the point where Clement Greenberg is very annoyed that William de Kooning is dismissing Jackson Pollock as a merely transitional figure, uh, probably leading to de Kooning himself. Uh, you know, there's this anxiety throughout the book among these different figures about who is the transitional figure and who is the triumphant figure, who is the Richard Wright to James Baldwin, say, and then who comes after Baldwin. That's right. And there's a struggle. I mean, the Wright-Baldwin struggle is the classic struggle in this period. Who gets to tell the story, what it means to be black in America? And who gets to tell the story of abstract expressionism, to Kooning or Greenberg or Rosenberg? That's what makes it novelistic, I think, because they're... They're competing, as everybody does, and all, all of us do in this world, competing to get their voice out in front. That's part of what makes the story fun. You capture the way in which uh, the characters in the book don't know how it's going to turn out. It's right. yeah. and sort of like a good novel in which uh, the resolution of the conflict feels preordained or right. And yet, as you go through the novel... Uh, page by page, the characters don't know what's going to happen, and the reader doesn't know what's going to happen either. There's a sense of surprise. No, it's like, let's try That's All Right Mama. It's like, what? Why do we try that silly song? Boom! It's happened. So a lot of it is just serendipitous. That's what's, That's also interesting. To me, one of the great mysteries of trying to understand cultural moments is that if you're at 50,000 feet looking down at the period, a lot of things look like they're kind of all similar this is the culture of spontaneity or the culture of the Cold War or whatever, and that everything kind of fits into a pattern as though it was programmed to be the way it was. And then when you get down to street level, it's all serendipitous. It's just an accident that Greenberg ran into Pollock on Houston Street in 1942 or whatever it was. And yet that becomes incredibly generative. Suppose Pollock had walked down a different block, you know, or... You know, Robert Rauschenberg fell in love with Jasper Johnson when he was working at a bookstore on 57th Street. Suppose he never walked into that bookstore. So those are kind of the amazing things about cultural history is that there's so much accident in it. But despite that, there's a level at which you can look and say, oh, this, this all kind of makes sense. This is the way it's supposed to be. That's, to me, a great mystery. I don't think that I can solve that, but I try to at least put the pieces in play so you can see how things happen the way they do. 
At the beginning of the book, you discuss the very concept of freedom itself. You write, quote, If you had asked me when I was growing up what the most important good in life was, I would have said freedom. Now I can see that freedom was the slogan of the times, the word that was used to justify everything. What it can realistically mean. I wrote this book to help myself and maybe you figure that out. So one way to read your book is as a study of the ways artists and other thinkers between 1945 and 1965 have balanced, say, freedom and discipline. And it seems to me that one conclusion you lead the reader toward is that real freedom is not a free-for-all where anything goes, even though it may sometimes seem that way. Uh, this is where I sense the influence of the American pragmatists on your thinking. Uh, you write at one point that the ice that we walk on is never not thin, which is different from the cliche that we're on thin ice. It says that there are better and worse ideas out there and that part of freedom is taking responsibility for our own choices. Yeah, I'm a 60s person. So, you know, the values that were important to me were freedom, individual freedom and authenticity. And then you get older and you think, what does it mean to have individual freedom? You know, our life is heteronymous through and through. We're shaped by social forces and other people. There's no place to stand outside of that. And what does authenticity mean? How do I consciously decide to be authentic? Just standard sort of, you know, junior high school philosophical questions, but they go to the heart of these values. So the book was a little bit trying to figure out what do people mean by, because it gets evoked by absolutely everybody right. in this period. Uh, what, do they, what do they actually think that means? You gave the example from art where we think of Cage's music as free expression, but actually was incredibly laboriously composed according to a very strict method, this method of composition by chance. But we think of Pollock's drip paintings also as exemplifying the freedom of the artist to throw the paint wherever he, he or she wants, but actually Pollock was incredibly deliberate. And when we look at the paintings, you can see it. It's very disciplined. Or Kerouac trying to type his whole novel on a single sheet of paper. Those are hard things to do. There's not free in the sense of spontaneous and anything goes at all. So what was free about it? What did they feel was free about it? And I think the Sartrean formula is, you know, a guiding formula. Not that all, they all read it but, or understood it, but the idea is that, yes, you are free. And that's an incredible responsibility because by making choices freely, you must take responsibility for what happens. You have to own it. And that's very different from this permissive idea of freedom that I think most people have. You're careful to say that this is not a cultural or an intellectual history of the Cold War, but the Cold War is almost like a character in this book. It's the thing that makes everything else matter. It makes the talk and debates and conferences and magazines into something more than just talk, debates, conferences, and uh, magazines. There seems to be a yearning for an era where things really mattered, where ideas meant something. Yeah, and again, that reflects my own personal history. When I came old enough to understand what was going on a little bit in the 60s, people really cared about abstract painting. They thought all kinds of things rode on the question of whether this was legitimate or not, or rock and roll, or you know, whatever. There was real anxiety after 1945 about the possibility of the United States or liberal democracies sliding in towards totalitarianism because people worried that in modern societies with mass publics and so on, there's just no way to govern by liberal democratic principles and that the tendency is for people to seek refuge in some kind of authoritarian 
society that they like that. They want to escape from freedom. All kinds of people share this anxiety on the left and on the right. So for all these people, the question of what would it be that would tip society over into that direction was always present. So it mattered what kind of paintings you made. It mattered the way you interpreted Hollywood movies. It mattered what kind of music you listened to because it had implications for the kind of society we might become. Even post-Trump, we don't quite have that anxiety anymore. We have a little bit because of Trump's authoritarianism, but we sort of don't think we're going to become a totalitarian state. But in 1945 and 1955, people weren't sure. So all this anxiety produces this feeling that these questions, which we think of now as just basically questions of aesthetics and taste, are actually hugely important for understanding the direction that society's going to take. I do feel a certain nostalgia for that. I mean, I wouldn't want to live in 1955 again, but I can see why as a person who writes about art and ideas all the time for a living, it was more important in a way in that period than it is today, where there's, it's not like people think it that much matters about what the kind of music you listen to. So that's another thing I'm trying to recapture is this period when, when all these things really matter to people in a way that feels a little antique to us now. One thing your book is particularly effective at is explaining uh, what precisely was at stake. You know, I sometimes have trouble taking those dour books like The Authoritarian Personality written by Germans living in Southern California too seriously. Uh, so later, when Susan Sontag is praising the erotics of art or Pauline Kael is saying that it's important that you enjoy the movies, it wasn't just a sybaritic kind of thing. No, it wasn't just like, oh, let's stop taking this stuff so seriously at all. Was, let, let's understand how to take it seriously. Adorno was one of the co-authors of The Authoritarian Personality. It is a ridiculous book, I think, but, and he was living in California. But Adorno, like Hannah Arendt, think about Hannah Arendt. She's born in Königsberg, the hometown of Immanuel Kant. She studies with all the leading philosophers in Germany, with Heidegger, with Jaspers. She writes her dissertation on St. Augustine concept of love. She's this superstar in the German Academy. And then because she's Jewish, she's forced into a concentration camp in Southern France. She's very lucky with her husband to get a visa to get out of Marseille. And they make their way to the United States and have like $20 in their pocket. They don't know English. They don't know anybody in the United States. They have just a general contempt for the idea of American culture. And she has to build her life all over again. And she came very close to being deported and killed in Auschwitz uh, from this camp in southern France. After she left, all the good were taken and, and murdered. So those people had a legitimate reason to feel anxious about tendencies in American society that they thought would lead in a direction that Germany had gone in and Europe had gone in that caused them to flee. So that's true for Adorno and the Horkheimer and the Frankfurt School people too. Really the biggest influence on the thinking about totalitarianism in the post-war period was George Orwell, uh, who never came to the United States and who had very little interest in the United States. But that book was read as a prophecy of what could happen here. And also what a post-war Britain was like and the uh, circumstances there. We forget that. Is what you're suggesting in 1984, it's a very dystopic world where there's not enough goods to go around, everything is rationed, everything is kind of bleak, and we think, oh, he's describing the Soviet Union, but actually he's describing post-war London. Most of the emigre intellectuals and artists who come to the U.S. go back to Europe when they can. 
Uh, most of them don't particularly like American culture, and very few of them come to appreciate what makes America different and not just a second-rate version of Europe. There are a few, though, like uh, Joseph Albers, who loves traveling around the country and spends the rest of his career at Yale, or uh, Hannah Arendt, who values the kind of political culture that has developed in America. You see it in her book on the American Revolution and her amazement that you know, ordinary American citizens will protest on behalf of people that they've never even met, like the Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II. And actually, that's the message of Eichmann, really, is that if you're a citizen in a state and you actually participate in politics, that's a way of staving off destruction. So her critique of the Jews, I mean, this is, of course, hugely debated, critique of the Jews during the Holocaust was that because they'd never been engaged in politics, they just had no way of handling what was happening to them. Whereas in Britain, when with the passage of the reform laws in the 19th century, people got the right to vote, they were able to participate in the democratic process. And that's what saved Britain from possibility of becoming totalitarian. So when she came here, as you say, she was amazed by the way ordinary citizens took an interest in political issues, which is something that she thought was great about America. She also thought America was a place of a lot of social conformity, which is what was bad about America. It's a mixed bag in terms of the emigres. Almost all of them did not want to come to the United States. They would not have chosen to come here. The ones from Germany and Central Europe tended to stay because most of them came in 1933, 1934. So they were here for a very long time before the war ended. Whereas the French painters and the surrealists who came in 1941 after the fall of France Almost all of them went back right away after the war was over. So that's an interesting part of the story is which of the emigres became Americanized or part of the American cultural world. A lot of the musicians, for example, did, and which did not, like a lot of the painters did not. You tell a very different kind of story about race in America. You begin with what has become a fairly standard story about uh, Richard Wright and James Baldwin, Irving Howe, and uh, Ralph Ellison, but you tell it via Bandung and Martinique and Paris, and the whole feel of it is very different. Uh, you discuss the 1956 conference in Paris, which Baldwin reports on, and you write, one of the central questions that the Congress, therefore, even though it was probably not in the minds of most delegates, was what it meant to be an African-American. What exactly is the African part of the identity? It made some sense to speak of black African culture distinct from white European culture. Did it make sense to talk about African-American culture distinct from an American culture? Senghor, Césaire, Fanon, and Wright all had different answers. Yeah, I mean, the big story globally is decolonization. I mean, that's the big story, not the Cold War. It just completely changes the international map. And the decolonizing movements that start up after the war is the context for the American Civil Rights Movement. There's lots of good books about the way in which the fact of decolonization and the geopolitical stakes in that, both from the American point of view and the Soviet point of view, help make the civil rights movement more successful and more possible in the United States in the 1960s because there was a lot of pressure on the American government to show support for these new national movements in the former European colonies. And then the fact that Baldwin spends eight years in Paris, where a lot of these thinkers come, like Fennel, Aimé Césaire, and so on, and goes to this conference in 1956. And as you say, it's a showcase for the question, which is central to Baldwin and central to Wright, what do African-Americans have in common with Africans? And that's a really fascinating question of identity that Baldwin wrestles with in, in that essay. 
and that Wright wrestles with in the Bondome yeah. book and the book and the book about Ghana. So I, I, yeah, I felt that was a good way to tell the story. But I have to say, the other night I saw One Night in Miami, and I thought, oh, I wish I'd had that story. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. Throughout your work and in this book in particular, you have a signature move that I like. First, you recount the received, sometimes iconic anecdote with uh, all its attendant drama. It might be how Isaiah Berlin met with Anna Akhmatova, or when Baldwin says he met Richard Wright by uh, spontaneously knocking on the writer's door. Then you explain all the reasons that the standard account cannot possibly be correct. And finally, you tell the reader what actually happened, explaining the motivations for telling the iconic but false story. And you do all this in a very deadpan straight way with really no malice whatsoever. I'm not just trying to show off. It's that there's a lot of gossip, particularly about this period. Your job as an historian is check it out. And so what I feel like, well, here's, here's a story that gets passed down. It's probably not true. So if you're going to tell the story, you should acknowledge that it may not be a lot of basis for it. That happens a lot. I'm sure I added to the list of errors you know, that people make about this period because you can't help it. But I tried to fact check a lot of st- sort of claims. Journalists tell stories about people and are drawn to biography in all its forms. Academic scholars tend to look down on the form. The free world, like the metaphysical club before it, takes a distinctly biographical approach. How do you navigate the divide between journalism and the academy? I don't care. I don't pay any attention to it. It's just the way I write. I couldn't explain to you the difference between the academic reception of my work and the general reader's reception of it. I don't pay a lot of attention to that. I've always written this way. It's the way I think. And for people who aren't that interested in the biographical details, I hope I have other things that I'm writing about that will be of interest to them. So no, it's not something I really worry too much about. Toward the end of the book, you write, quote, In 1945, there was widespread skepticism among European and American intellectuals about the value and sophistication of American art and ideas and widespread respect for the motives and intentions of the American government. After 1965, those attitudes were reversed. The United States had lost political credibility, but it had moved from the periphery to the center of an increasingly international artistic and intellectual life, unquote. Do you feel that American culture is still more relevant and uh, admired than American politics, or did they at some point trade places again? That's a good question. I don't think I have a particularly thoughtful answer to it, but I think that in the mid-60s, there is, I think you used this term, there's a good balance between the American side of the equation and the rest of the world in the realm of art and ideas, broadly speaking. And that, as I say in the book, that the political capital that the United States had built up, leading the fight against fascism and rebuilding Western Europe and Japan, it burned through in Southeast Asia so that the rest of the world now looks skeptically on the use of American power, which is 1945, they did not. But the rest of the world does respect the United States as a place where art and ideas are generated that are of interest to the rest of the world. I think that the balance then tips very much in the U.S. direction for the rest of the century. Now it's very global and very corporate, just has a completely different feel to it. I do think, nevertheless, that particularly in art, the fine arts, the world's international. Artists are not identified by country in the same way that they were in the 1940s and 50s. And I think that's also true of literature to a large degree. Now it's a global market. Pascal Casanova wrote a book, I'm sure you know, called The World Republic of Letters, about the centrality of Paris before the war as a place that all literature had to get translated in order to become global. And now it's New York. 
everything gets translated into English, so to speak, or to some kind of American form, and then it gets transmitted to the rest of the world. All those possibilities get opened up by the period I'm writing about, but they're not yet realized in that period. I guess that's the way I would answer your question. I feel by 1965, it's the world we recognize. Reading The Free World, I thought a lot about Thomas Kuhn and his paradigms. The book is full of people who are brilliant uh, in knowing when a paradigm shift has occurred and also knowing how to take advantage of it. Uh, Susan Sontag is one of them. She understands the way the culture is moving in the 60s in a different direction, uh, in a way that Irving Howe uh, simply doesn't. But the thing about Susan is that she lived for understanding where the paradigm was going. I mean, that was basically the focus of everything that she did. So it's not surprising that she kind of figured it out. She's just incredibly good at that. Most people don't think quite that way. In other words, they do what they're doing. They're plugged into what everybody else is doing, but they're not thinking like, where's the paradigm going? And if they're lucky and the talent intersects with the zeitgeist and everything else, they become the cutting edge. It doesn't last very long, usually. The drip painting period is three and a half years. That's it. But everything we care about with Pollock are those paintings. They were sort of just unbelievable paintings. And he just stopped making them. He couldn't make them anymore. Elvis Presley had about three years of making what we think of as rhythm, blues, rock and roll, that kind of music. Then he sings all his crap and for the rest of his career. So it's not that long that individuals have an opportunity to affect taste and to affect the direction that uh, culture is going. And the biographical thing for me is trying to capture that moment. I'm not trying to give the whole full-dress biography of all these figures. I'm trying to capture the moment when they come into the scene and they have something to say or something to express that makes a difference to lots of other people. And those are incredible moments in history to capture those moments. Hound Dog's a great example of how a certain version of the story gets repeated over and over again, which is basically untrue, where that song came from and what it meant that Elvis covered it. If you just look at the history of the song, it's quite different from the standard version of that. So there's a lot of accident involved. That's what I'm trying to capture is that they don't always know what they're doing. Sam Phelps vaguely knew what he wanted, but he didn't really know how to get it. It just kind of happened one night when he had Elvis in the studio and he started playing this song that they hadn't planned to do at all. They thought he would sing a ballad, which is what he thought he would do. He never sung rhythm and blues in his life before. And it worked. And it changed the history of popular music. Everyone's going to read this book and think, why didn't he write about this person? I wondered why there wasn't more about Bob Dylan. Uh, I thought maybe it had to do with the fact that everything Dylan did was so calculated. Uh, he actually knew exactly what he was doing when he went electric uh, or when he encouraged other people to cover his songs in addition to playing them by himself. He was probably a more astute businessman than pretty much any of these other more creative people in the era. I agree. He's a very sharp character. There's a little bit of Dylan in the book, but he, yeah. he's not central. I mean, one big lacuna is jazz. That's something that's very live issue in the 1950s, both the performers of jazz and then particularly among white listeners to jazz. It evolves in, you know, pretty dramatic ways. That could be a chapter, really. I was not aware that you knew so much about the art world. Was that something you'd always followed or was it a subject that you had to work up? Oh, I'd always been interested in American art. A book that was a big influence on me, it's now 30 years old, is The Shock of the New, which is Robert Hughes's book, which was the book version of a television series that he did about modern art, I think 1979 or 1980. And I just got fascinated with post-1945, particularly American art. I mean, I had to learn a lot of stuff in order to write the book, but yeah, that was a big interest of mine. 
Is your next book going to be about 1965 to the present? No more histories. I'm not spending the next 20 years on a library. I mean, I love doing it. I feel very happy writing this way, but I want to write something that's a little bit different from a heavily researched historical book because I just feel like it takes takes a long time to do it. And I'm happy with these two books. I don't feel I need to write another huge book. So I don't know what I want to do afterwards. We first met in the 1990s when I was a magazine editor and you were writing a column for us. You've excelled uh, as a magazine writer, whether in profiles or criticism. There's a quality to your prose that's very magazine-like, for lack of a better, better phrase. And, you know, I don't mean it in a pejorative sense. What I mean is that, you know, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, you really draw the reader along. There isn't any throat clearing. There's no sentence or paragraph that are there simply to be dutiful or to signify something. How has your magazine sensibility influenced you as a writer and thinker? I'm totally a magazine writer. I think the main thing that I learned, took me a while to figure out how to do it when I started out, but the main thing I learned has something to do with the print era. And that's the era that you started out in as well. And the main consideration for writing in the print era is space, because there's only so many pages and so many columns. So you have to make every sentence count. The place I really started learning how to do this was at the New Republic in the 80s. And every paragraph has to matter. Every sentence has to matter. And not only does it have to matter, but it has to give the reader pleasure such that the reader wants to keep going. I often say that the definition of good writing is it's writing is more painful to stop reading than to keep reading. Mm. You can't stop reading it because there's a kind of propulsion to the sentences and the paragraphs that make you want to find out how it comes out. I think a lot of academic writing doesn't have that because the academic writers tends to assume that the reader is just going to slog through it no matter what, out of a sense of responsibility. But magazine readers aren't like that. They just go to another story if they get bored. It's like television. They change the channel. What's part of the job is to keep people engaged and to have people care about how your story is going to come out so they get through the whole thing. And that's the way I write. So it was hugely important for me to learn really at the New Republic and then at the New Yorker and other places to learn how to do that. I think it's really helped the books too, because this is a long book. It was supposed to be fun. You're supposed to enjoy it. Luke Manan, thank you for talking with me about your new book, The Free World. Thank you, Rob. That was great. I really enjoyed our conversation. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.